Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning. It's Friday, September 27, 2019. I'm Orla Carmody. Coming up, what really happened in the Irish water controversy. The need for home care projected to grow by as much as 120% by 2030. Childcare staff priced out of work while crash fees rise and rise. And the possibility of a four-day week. But first... The housing crisis and the Garda restructuring have been in the news this week with rent increases and co-living making the headlines on the one hand and pulling Garda control centres from dormitory towns like Navan, Nace and Bray causing widespread dismay on the other hand. Joining us now this morning is Damien English, Minister of State at the Department of Housing and Urban Development and Fine Gael TD for Meath West and you're welcome to the programme, Minister. If I can start with the Garda restructuring, do you have faith in it, the new structure? Did you know it was coming or was it a bombshell to you too? Now, good morning, Orla, and thanks for having me on. A couple of issues there. Uh, first of all, I do have faith in the Commissioner. Um, we have asked, the commi- we've appointed a new Commissioner to reform, uh, to, to drive a reform agenda uh, across the, the police force. And I believe he will do that. Um, again, he's implementing plans that are, that are international, international best practice. They've been debated in this country for years. There's been report after report, and many independent experts recommended these changes. And so I do believe that when he says this will give us a better service, a more frontline guarantee, I do believe that, and I will judge him on that. And did um, you know actually, it was coming, this uh, removal well, I, I of the centres? coming, naturally. You know, just to be, just to be clear, um, the, the debate whether it was going to be Navin or Mullingar, I didn't know the final answer on that. Uh, that, was, that was his final decision to be made. Um, but he's very clear on this, that that doesn't affect the Garda services in Navan or in County Mead. And naturally, from, from an administration point of view and from keeping jobs locally, I would prefer if Navan was picked, because there will be some of the jobs will move, but not the police services, not the actual on-the-ground work that the, that the Garda do. And they do an excellent job in Navan, and they've got increased staff. I'm the first to admit, like anybody else, they need better facilities, and we've been working on that for the last couple of years. And that's well, coming. nobody would doubt that they're doing a great job, but in terms of the overall picture, is it going to be like Irish Water? Is it going no, to be I, another I, PR bottle that just will get lost? I, because know, I, think, I, think, I think it'd been unfair on that. And I, I listened to uh, Shane Castle and the Palatine last, uh, last night, late last night, on the, on the read side of your programme. And it's funny because uh, in, in, nationally, Fianna Fáil policy is to back the Commissioner and to back these reforms. Shane Castle's uh, just as spokesperson Jim O'Callaghan very clearly said we have to back these reforms and give them a chance 
and yet locally then Shane Castle is a bit in, 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 you know, disingenuous with the local people by jumping up and down and giving out about it whereas Fianna Fáil policy is to back this and look naturally we would all have preferred if, if he announced this week that it was Navin over Mullingar that's not really the issue when it comes to Garda services uh, and frontline duties on the ground. And I obviously the, the bigger Garda picture obviously you're, you're referring to there and we will come to that in a second but if we could just listen to something that Shane Castle said because it's about the investment in the infrastructure and Mullingar being yes. chosen rather than um, Navin. If we could just listen to it for a second and then I'll come back to you Minister if that's okay. Uh, what I would say first of all is that at our policing meeting that we hold um, regularly with uh, the Chief Superintendent Fergus Healy uh, from Mead uh, and we held it on Monday with him. I think he, he gave a fair indication where things were leading to because he spoke of how the state of guard accommodation in Meath uh, was poor and how Mullingar and its loan were currently getting new stations built. And obviously that was a determining factor in that they had facilities ready to go. Uh, and I think to explain to people, because I've said it's not just about bricks and mortar, it is about where the focus is going to lie. And when you take the Mead, uh, West Mead Division now, stretching from the coast over near where you are, all the way over to Atlone, that's 162 kilometres. And that's a fairly expansive area now for the Gardaí to have to cover. So it would seem, Minister, that the decision to put the infrastructure into Mullingar was made some time ago, maybe a couple of years back before this report. And I'm just wondering, how did that come about? Why was the decision made to put it there rather than, say, oh, in Navin, which is closer to Dublin and has twice the population? Yeah, no, that, that bit is not true. The, the decision was not made years ago. There's been ongoing um, work and, and, and various Chief Superintendent Fergus Healy's been great working there trying to campaign for the new regional divisional headquarters to be built in Navin. And we've, we've been looking at different sites. I've been dealing with the OPW myself and Charlie Fang on that as well, trying to pick a site to develop that, that new building. And that would include probably a new station for Navin as well, because everyone agrees that the Navin station has to be upgraded. There is money allocated to do that. So that work was continuing over the last year or two, and we made great progress, and Navin was, was, was well up for that. So it's not a case of there was no plans to develop a regional headquarters in Navin. This is a new decision. Uh, and it was based for, for different reasons. The Commissioner, um, no doubt, will, will, will meet us locally to go through this as well, because I've asked for that meeting too, so we can go through in detail. But I believe the Commissioner that this, this, that part of the arrangement is about administration. What we have to concentrate on more on is what happens on the ground. Are we going to get a better Gardaí service because of this? I believe we will. I believe we will have more Gardaí on the streets. We'll have more visibility of guards. I believe they'll be closer to the community. I believe that, because that's the reform agenda he's been brought in to drive. And I know we'll all have different co- comments on that and we'll have different concerns, but we have to back, we bring in a person to drive a reform agenda. Everyone is saying for years we have to reform uh, frontline services, and here's an opportunity to do that. And I will agree with Shane Castle, Patrick Bean and many others, that we have to back that reform with real money. Uh, and we are now at a time where we're seeing extra resources being put into, into the, into the Gardaí. They need them. They deserve them. They deserve the best equipment, the best facilities. And that has to follow now with this reform agenda. And it will happen because Charlie Flanagan has given that commitment as well. And that's my job as a local TD minister to make sure we're getting the best service on the ground. But um, you can understand the concerns and obviously the restructuring is putting the f- emphasis on, uh, you know, different divisions and a different heading to those divisions. So there's a crime focus or there's a cyber crime focus and it makes sense. But for the local people who just see um, the loss of a centre of excellence from their own area, you can understand they would under- they would feel that that is going to impact on less policing, not more on the ground. Yeah, just to be clear, uh, Arla, what the, what, what's changing here is it is administration end. It's an administrative decision. They're, and they're not going to see a loss of service on the ground. They're going to see an increase in service. 
Um, what you, you know, the, the, the divisional headquarters was out in Johnson, uh, part of the building out there. That that is going to be now in Mullingar, and there will be some staff changes on administration then. But it will not. You will not see a reduction in Gardaí on the streets or a reduction in services. And I believe that. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't back this reform. Agenda. But could there be an issue around delayed response times given that the centre no. of focus is removed or even, you know, the guard, the presence, as I've said. I mean, people have these genuine concerns. Well, so, sorry, Ali, you, you keep saying that there's going to be a reduction in guard of presence. That's not what's happening here. There's an administration movement, not movement of Gardaí. Uh, and to be clear on that, and I think we have. But to there's a loss of a superintendent. That in itself is a loss of the sort of structure and the and the passing down of command, if you like. So that but in it, itself it, is a loss. Again, the administration of the area, Westmead and Mead, have been put in together, uh, and then there'll be a reallocation of resources to match the divisions that are needed, larger larger divisions. We're, we've seen Navin, the number of Gardaí in Navin increase over the last seven years. Uh, by from I think it was about seventy seventy five or six a few, eight years ago. Now it's up at ninety four. Um, and that's what's needed. And we need to increase those resources around county meads. There's many places like Enfield, like Longwood, um, like Beliver that need more Gardaí as well. We're getting them in. There's extra Gardaí coming into the system. These reforms will result in an extra 1,500 Gardaí. They'll see an extra 1,000 being reassigned to frontline duties who are on administrative work. That's a positive. That's what we need. There will also be more Garda staff in, in general that, that aren't frontline Gardas. And that's what we want. And I think we'll have to judge them on, on, on the work and on the reform. It's important that all of us keep check this and make sure it actually happens put the resources behind it but I do believe this commissioner uh, I think has been a bit of a breath of fresh air and he is rocking the boat he is making changes we mightn't all like it it mightn't suit um, that he picks Mullingar over and for the administration end of it I'd rather he didn't but that's not about the, the, the policing service that's about it, managing it what's important to me is who's on the ground who's doing the work and who's there to respond to a call for crime and that means more frontline Gardaí and that's what we're going to get in this and I believe in that now, Well that's, that all remains to be seen and hopefully we will see we that coming to, to, can, it, can it be fair on that? We have to judge on that yes there's going to be this is not going to happen overnight this will take a bit of time we'll have a lot of discussion because I know uh, some of the Gardaí representative bodies have concerns about this and that this has to be teased through because they, they need to buy into this too but when I listen to their concerns it's generally around the same concerns you have will it really happen will the reform will we right? actually see yeah. this and will and we actually see that, more boots on the street no and that's a fair point so that we, we have to judge that as it happens I believe it will happen because I think this commissioner uh, you know has shown that he's a man of action and I, and I, and I believe that now we have to make sure it happens and ok and there's also way, a sense I will support it. there's also a sense that you know me the loses out and the, the suggestion is made that with three government ministers a senator that we're not watching the backyard as closely as we might do okay. just let's yeah. listen to this clip from Pather Toby and then I'll come back to you, Minister. This is not unusual for Meath. So Meath always loses out. And we're not just speaking the poor mouth here. If you look at Loud Meath uh, ETB, when the VECs were joined together, we lost the headquarters for that. Uh, Navan is the biggest town in the country without a rail line. We have the lowest mental health investment in the country. We have one of the lowest IDA, EI investments in the country. The ministers in County Mead are asleep at the wheel, in my view. Uh, It's absolutely incredible. Myself and Shane attended a joint policing committee meeting uh, in Mead County Council with senior guardy uh, in the area last Monday. There was was no ministers uh, in attendance. The pressure has to be put on to the ministers in Mead to start standing up for their county. Now, that's the local versus the national again, and I, we understand that. But, but how would you respond to that, Minister English? And again, it's a bit like Shane Cattle's, you know, saying one thing local, but his party are saying something more at a national level. My job is to, is to do both. And me and, the, and, the, and Helen McIntyre, Regina Doherty, 
we do fight for me and we've been very successful in that if, you know Pavel will always try to hone in on some parts that, that, that suit his argument but actually if you look at the investment in Mead over the last number of years we're one of the lowest unemployment in, 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 in the country and we were the first probably to get there and we have new investments through IDA to Enterprise Ireland over the last seven or eight years because there's been a focus on that there's a high investment in, in education naturally because of the population increases that happened under previous governments, we our resources don't match what they should be when it comes to council levels and health services, and we're fighting for that, and we're getting those increases. And where I'm responsible for budgets in my department, I can prove to you that where we have allocated extra money to Mead because Mead needs that. So Mead is catching up to where it should have been, and that's my job as a minister, and, and, and my colleagues would be well to make sure that happens. So we are, are making those improvements, and naturally they would have happened quicker uh, if we had been in government during boom times, but we weren't. Well, on the subject of resources, 35,000 new houses a year needed. Do we have any hope of seeing this number provided? We do. Again, Orla, there's two issues here. Um, we, we are the ones that put out kind of a 2025 year plan along with the ESRI, predicting what we need to get to in terms of houses per year to have a sustainable construction sector that addresses the need now and into the future and that we never have a housing crisis again. And we've targeted that at about 30, between 30 and 35,000 houses a year every year. Okay. Now, when we start, but you're not reaching that target. You're sorry, you're targeting sorry, yeah. it, but it's not coming close to it. Yeah, but already you can't get there in one year. When we started this plan, there was less than five thousand houses being built in this country a year. That's only three years ago. This year, you will see over twenty-one thousand houses built, uh, and including vacant properties been brought back, back into the system and houses that were left unfinished. We'll have about twenty-four, twenty-five. But notwithstanding that, the report from the Residential Tenancies Board yesterday showed that rents are soaring. That yes, there's a constant flow from of people from rental properties into homelessness. What what else should you be doing to alleviate this? Okay, well, there's a lot of issues there. But again, first of all, reaching that thirty thousand target is about long-term commitment to housing, and we've. We're doing that, and we've allocated the resources to make sure that we're also building enough social houses, which will be 10,000 a year uh, this year, 12,000 next year and the year after. That wasn't done in the past. You need to do that every year so that you won't have have a housing crisis. We're the first to admit that while we get supply up from practically less than 5,000 up to that 30,000 mark, you, you know, we are going to be faced with higher rents, and that's what's happening there. And that's why we brought in the rent pressure zones, which are making a difference and have reduced the increases in rent. And that's expanded out now to, to many places in Loud and Mead and so on. And it is having an impact to keep rents down. But in general, there is a shortage of supply, and that is putting serious pressure on the rental market. And, and we know that. And we work with people every day of the week who, who become homeless for different reasons, not always to do with the rent, our economic reasons, very often there's other social reasons as well. We work with all those people and all those families and, and getting them back into a home and sourcing a house for them. Now, that, the organisations like Simon and Threshold would suggest that the uh, rent pressure zones are not working because, as I've said, they keep seeing people moving into homelessness. The figures are now above 10,000 for the sixth month in a row and obviously they're July figures and that's going to increase in the winter. So, you know, will the budget contain any hope for, for, for pressed renters or indeed people trying to get on the, on, on the housing ladder. It, it will, Harla, and I, I'm happy to go through all the different actions because with our Rebuilding Ireland, our action plan for housing, we got a five-year envelope of money uh, to be able to tackle this. So the budget coming up, we know we're going to get, again, our increase for capital expenditure. We know we're going to have, again, the largest ever housing budget to tackle this. So and you've been promised that life. and you're definitely getting it? No, we are getting it, because my work, along with Simon Coby and Owen Murphy at the time, was to put together a five-year plan that won the resources year one to, to be spent over five years to tackle this, because we recognise, and so does anybody that looks at this logically, you can't fix a housing crisis that developed over many, many decades. You won't fix it in one year. We've made great progress now by year three, 
but it was a five-year plan and the money is allocated to bring us through that five-year plan. And I've no doubt if we stick to that plan with all the actions which will increase supply of housing across social, affordable and private, we will be through this housing crisis. And, we'll and specifically in the area of funding for homelessness prevention, which has been called for yes. by Simon and Threshold, will, will there be something allocated to that? Yeah, there has been. This year there's a spend of nearly £140 million in that and, we, and it'll be the, the same next year and, and above if required. There is no, you know, that's a demand-led service. We allocate the money that's needed to help families during a situation where they're without a house. But to be clear on this, what's changed now compared to two years ago, if a family becomes homeless today, in 50% of the cases we are able to find them a new home in that, in that first week. And then the rest, um, it takes, you know, we're down to less than six months. The majority are found a new home. Compared to two years ago, you could have been left homeless for a year or two years. That doesn't happen in the norm anymore. There's still some cases for different reasons, but the majority now, we are able to help them through the system and get them back into either a rented home or a more permanent home quite quickly. And that means... Yeah, there are still a lot of of families in the uh, temporary accommodation. There are all that. And again, if you look at me, there's eight families in emergency accommodation in in, in the month of July. Um, But they are moved quite quickly back into into a new house. The difficulty is the next month, a different set of families might present as homeless. So even though we're making great progress in finding new housing for people and finding new, new homes and new, new solutions, every week there's, there's more people coming into the system, so you have to find more houses. But to be clear, we are now much quicker of, of intervening through our local authorities, like Loud and Mead, who last year, both of them produced over 1,200 houses through all the different systems for people who need them. So there's great progress being made now that wasn't being made a couple of years ago because the money wasn't there and the staff weren't there. So we need to keep doing that to get ahead of this. And, and I believe we will do that. Indeed. And, and, and finally happy. then, Minister English, um, the move by developers towards co-living has been slated, obviously because of the fears of substandard accommodation or high rents and even the, the detrimental effect on community. Do you share these concerns? I don't share these concerns, and, and I'll tell you why, Orla. This, again, co-living will be a small percentage of the delivery of housing. I listened to owner Bryn yesterday talking as if every application in Dublin uh, was for co-living. There's been five planning applications made for five projects. Three have been refused. Um, there's 30,000 houses granted permission in the last 12 months and apartments and so on, and less than 1,000 of them, less than 1,000, were, were for co-living, I think only a couple of hundred. So there's an exaggeration to say that this is taking over. Now, co-living is one option. And in the planning regulations, we allow for it. But we're very clear on this, that it's it's only there's meant to be a small concentration of it. And it has to be judged on each individual area by the planning authority. So probably more than likely, a lot of the applications for this won't get through the planning system. Now that's in well, the, twelve metres of so, living sorry, space, sorry, as we saw, is terribly sorry. inadequate, really, isn't it? But I mean, that? I said 12 metres of living space doesn't yeah, sound great. I mean, co-living in itself is not a bad idea, probably, if there was a fabulous big room that the person could no, occupy, uh, you know. Again, what is the co-living that we're allowing for in Ireland? It's similar to what's in other countries, and it's generally used as temporary accommodation. And, and again, all the research backs that up. The majority of people who use co-living and, and, and the houses of this size only spend, again, they don't live there permanently, less than 5% would actually live permanently in that, in that accommodation because it's generally for flexible working people coming in and out, moving jobs, and they might come to a new city and spend the six or eight, first six or eight months in a co-living situation and then move into a, a more permanent apartment or house. So it's generally not for permanent housing, and certainly it is not for social housing. We won't be funding it. It's another option in the private market that's now allowed for in our planning, but it will not be the norm. It will not be the main housing uh, delivery, and it won't be for social housing. But in every other city, it's 
used quite well and it's built to a high standard. Now, the difficulty is here in Ireland, it's coming in at a high price because at the moment, any rental properties are too high. And that and, and because we don't trust de- developers because of our history here. We have a very particular history here in Ireland. We, we, there, there is a history uh, and that's part of our, our job to correct that history. And that's why through proper regulation now and proper management and working with the construction sector, we're throwing that around and there will be a lot more trust in the system and what they're delivering. And in fairness, there's a lot of high quality houses being built now uh, and that that I'm happy to stand over uh, the minister in that department that sets sets the regulations. I couldn't stand over some of the houses that were built in the past under other regulations, but but we've changed that. And I think we're trying to build a much more quality home. And there's different categories of houses, different type of housing for all the different needs. But to be clear, co-living is a small element of that. It's not for social housing. It works well in other countries. It can work well here. We have had co-living in Ireland for a long, long number of years in an unplanned environment. People taking over family homes and, and co-living in them. It's not the ideal way. But at least it'll be planned now. And coordinated way. Indeed. And Minister Damien English, Minister for State at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, thank you for joining us with that this morning. We will look forward to the budget with interest to see what is provided for in terms of housing. And we will have more on the Garda restructuring shortly. But first, we'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now the time is coming up to 20 minutes to 10 and as we heard on the news, a Garda was hospitalised after being assaulted with a garden trowel in Dundalk yesterday evening. And here with more is our reporter Ruth O'Connell. What do we know about this, Ruth? Well, we know that the Garda in Dundalk received a call around five past five yesterday Sorry, I'm just make sure people can hear me. Yeah. Around five past five yesterday evening, and they were called to the Bakehouse apartment, which is in Church Street, where in, in and around where McCann's Bakery used to be near St Nicholas's Church, and they responded to what was reports of a disturbance, and. On arrival, one of the guards who was there, who's in his 20s, he was um, assaulted. It was actually with the builder's trowel um, that he was hit uh, above the left eye with and he sustained a cut um, and was taken to hospital for So treatment. the trowel was used and he, he got her... He, he, he was struck on, on struck uh, above close the left, to his eye. Above the left eye with... And that's, that's very what, serious, That's what yeah. cut him um, uh, um, and uh, he, he wasn't kept into... In, in hospital for treatment overnight. He, he was back in the station last night. And do we know what started this row or what the fracco was about? No, it's, 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 that's not emerged yet. But certainly um, there was a suspect who's in his 50s was arrested on suspicion of the assault on the Garda. And then there was a second person who was arrested for public order matters. But I think that was subsequent to the initial incident. And he's since been charged and will appear before court, uh, Dundalk District Court. So it happened at 5.30 yesterday evening at the Bakehouse Apartments and I presume the Garda would be looking for any witnesses or anybody who might know what went on. Five Garda Press said that uh, the guards had received the report and responded to the incident. So yeah, they would be appealing for anyone who was in that area. And I have to say, anyone who's familiar with the town centre of Dundalk at the moment is would be more than familiar with the chaos and uh, traffic disruption that's caused by the upgrading works that are happening there as part of the Clembrassel Street St Nicholas's Quarter improvement works and there are trenches that have been dug up at the moment so there's uh, traffic lights uh, controlling traffic there um, you know it's it's a one way system coming up uh, from Linen Hall Street up to Church Street no traffic can come from de- from the town centre uh, heading out uh, 
they just can't turn turn left. So it's a very confined area. So a lot and of people could have been so passing there, and there could have seen some traffic. If you were heading into the dog violin in Hall Street, there would have been holdups there. And it was very dramatic. The pictures were very dramatic. The amount of Garda vehicles at the scene. But as you can appreciate, given the, what's happened in the Dundalk uh, Garda district with the loss of lives uh, of officers, um, there was a quick response when it came in initially as a, a Garda being attacked. And luckily it's only a minor injury at the end of the day, although it was, as you say, yes, urgent absolutely. at the time. All right, Ruth Connell, thank you very much for joining us today with that update. And back now to the Garda restructuring. And we have Councillor Noel French, Fine Gael Councillor on Meath County Council on the line, and also Councillor Sharon Keoghan, Independent Councillor uh, from Dooleek. You're both very welcome to the programme. Can I start with you, you. Councillor uh, Sharon Keoghan? I know uh, Garda, uh, Garda headquarters Garda numbers is something you've spoken out about quite frequently in the past. Does this concern you, What this move? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is absolutely catastrophic for um, the loud Mead area, but particularly for the residents of Mead. Um, currently, at this moment in time, from the areas of Gormanstown, which actually is in, in the Mead area, um, to Mullingar, it's 90 kilometres for our district headquarters. While I know that the minister said yesterday... He, he, he claimed that he's going to actually have more Gardaí on operational duty than ever before. I fail to see how the Minister is going to be able to do that with the current levels that they are recruiting at this time. Well, the Minister has said now just shortly, uh, a short time ago on the programme that he's really confident that this means more Gardaí on the streets. It means uh, more presence, more cars visible. He has said all of this because he said this is just an administrative uh, issue going on in the background in terms of the restructuring. Do you believe that? Absolutely not. I do not believe it. I mean, the Gardaí were allocated £60 million last year in the budget. Um, and that, most of that was to go into um, the restructuring that the, that the, the police com- uh, the guard commissioner is talking about there. Like we were told that they wanted to get to um, twenty one thousand guards by twenty twenty one. There's absolutely no way that they're going to do that. Even if, if the figures were broken down to uh, fifteen thousand guardy and six thousand civilians uh, to support that, it is not going to be reached. There is no way it can be reached. Recruiting 600 a year with 400 people retiring on a yearly basis, it just doesn't add up. The figures do not add up and we, the people of Meath, are going to suffer as a consequence of the new restructuring. Councillor Noel French, the math doesn't add up there according to uh, Councillor Keoghan. Thanks very much, Orla. Uh, first of all, I'd like to send my good wishes to that Gardaí, uh, Garda that was injured down in Dundalk. Uh, you know, Gardaí answered these calls on our behalf, going out to domestic violence, domestic uh, uh, disputes and so on, and they never know what they're going out to. So, And particularly, we could've, we could've as our reporter Ruth O'Connell says, indeed, as, as Ruth said, it could have been yeah. more serious and, and brave so, guard, so. they go out and we, we never doubt that. Absolutely. And it, and, and it's, it, it is, it is, it is uh, a wonderful thing that uh, our guardy do for us. I am disappointed that uh, Navin uh, is not going to be the centre. Uh, I can understand why. I don't uh, like the idea of Mullingar being the centre because population of uh, West Mead is about 89,000, whereas Mead, we're pushing 200,000. Uh, Mead would be where most of the people are, and Mead really should be where the divisional headquarters uh, should be. But we, uh, there hasn't been a lack of investment uh, in Gardaí. We do need a new Garda station uh, in uh, Navan, badly, badly needed. 
and uh, it's not on our current plans at the moment and those run out next year. I did speak to the uh, Chief Superintendent Fergus Healy at our joint policing meeting last Monday and I asked about the possibility of renting uh, a suitable uh, building because in previous times the OPW who uh, organised the buildings uh, for government services have rented out buildings but apparently that's not a runner. The new plan and new reforms are to be very welcomed. Uh, we've had a number of scandals and various concerns with regard to the Gardaí uh, going back maybe 20 years or even longer. So this uh, reform is to be welcomed. Uh, it is uh, to create a modern police force. Uh, Before we, we get now- into that, can I just come back to, I mean, obviously as a me, the person, you are doing the the attitude that we've been hearing, let's defend our own local area, but at the same time, you're a government member and you have to listen Absolutely. to the minister when he says this is administrative. But at the same time, you know, as you, as you rightly say, Meath or, or Navin should have been the centre. It seems absolutely illogical that towns like Bray, the towns like Nace, the towns like Navin, that are huge urban centres that have huge populations, would not be the logical place to put the divisional headquarters. So how do you go along with it or indeed did you know this was coming? No, I didn't know this was coming, but I knew a decision was being made. And, and as I said, we did speak with the uh, chief superintendent on Monday with regard to, to this. And uh, the reality is there isn't a facility in Navan to host this divisional uh, headquarters. Look, and that's where the Greenfield site could have been... A greenfield site could have been found for this divisional headquarters, uh, Councillor French. We have three senior ministers belonging to your party, Fine Gael, that have failed once again to deliver these services for the people of County Mead. That is simply not good enough. You've got to ask yourself, what doors are being beaten down in relation to providing services, particularly, it doesn't matter whether it is Garda numbers, Garda stations, we need Garda stations, we need an upgrade an upgrade of the existing Garda station there in Navan. We need a 24-hour Garda station over in East Mead to deal with the, the large population that we have over here in the Laytown area. These things is, are things that we need on a daily basis. You get up in the chamber every single month and you criticise your own government party for not delivering, whether it be on housing, whether it, today it's on Garda numbers. You cannot talk out of both sides of your mouth here, Councillor French. You need to step up and make your ministers accountable for the people that you represent. Councillor French, to respond I, to that? I, I am in regular contact with all the ministers and I am regularly putting uh, putting uh, pressure on them on an ongoing basis. The reality is we had a boom uh, up until 2008 and Mead did not get its fair share of that. It did not get its fair share of that. And that's, uh, there was another party in power, uh, which I believe you were associated with at that time. Uh, is, and, well, I can assure uh, you, Fianna Fáil never closed down Temple more. There was no recruitment. There was no recruitment from 2010 to 2014. If we could have one voice, it'll be easier to hear. Maybe Councillor French come in and then Councillor Keoghan respond. This underfunding of Mead has gone on for decades. It goes back a long time. And then we had a financial crisis, and we're now emerging out of that financial crisis. Uh, our, go- uh, our party has been in government 
for the last eight or nine years. But for six or seven of those years, there simply was no money. Now there is money. We are investing. There is going to be 1,500 new guards by 2021. We have to do these things. Yes, we do have to uh, invest in need. Totally agree with you. Absolutely. That's why I do fight with my government and fight with my party, because we do need to fight for these things. Well, you do not, uh, speak out, Councillor French, and we don't deny, deny that. A, a final uh, comment from you, Councillor Keoghan. Look, at, I, 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 I just want the Fine Gael ministers and those that are in power, particularly the Fine Gael ministers, because we have three senior Fine Gael ministers uh, elected into government that can shout out for better deliverables for the people of this county. And they have not done that in any respect of delivering, whether it be better guards services, better housing, better, better infrastructure for the people, the people of this county. It, it's, it's shameful, their, their uh, track record here in government over the last number of years. It really is shameful. All right, Councillor Sharon Keoghan and Councillor Noel French, thank you for joining us today on the issue of the Garda restructuring and no doubt it is something we will be hearing more about uh, next week. Still to come in the programme, what really happened in the Irish water controversy. We'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now it's time for a few of your comments and texts and we're joined as always by Marie Kieran's. Where are you starting this morning, Marie? Oh, I think we have to stay with um, the Navin Garda station at the moment uh, because we're still getting lots of reaction from people in about that Orla. Uh, John from Kells, with all due respects to Damien English, I don't think this is about playing local politics, Orla. The reason why this station is going to uh, Mullingar is because they have a proper state of the art guard station there. We don't have it in Meath. Why is that? Why is there a lack of government investment in Meath when we have so many government representatives? Well, the station in Mullingar was an old station and it got a big refurb and it's got a big glass extension on it. So it is very high tech and, and it's getting further investment and, and probably a new station altogether. Margaret says, why is everything being taken away from Meath and nothing given? Our hospital is hanging by a thread. The uh, LMETB has gone to Louth. Now the Garda division is going to be moved to West Meath. Is it because when Meath is spoken about, it's regarded as part of the greater Dublin area and not given the same significance? It seems to be a poor relation when it comes to allocations and that should not be the case. It's just not right, says Margaret. Uh, Ken from Slane thinks that the, it's long overdue uh, this restructuring and he restructuring of the Garda divisions, and he is happy that this is happening. So there you go. We always get balance and everything. Here. Indeed, <laughs> Denise phoned in. She lives in East Meath, and she says that she's horrified by what is going on. She feels that the role of the super, chief superintendent will be badly missed in the county. It's not the same having the power of command elsewhere and so far away. Uh, Trace is not happy with Damien English and says that he has promised lots on housing and just hasn't delivered. How can we trust him that we are going to see more Gardaí on the streets in Meath? Uh, Orla, I listened to your interview yesterday with the Garda representative who is based in Meath and I found it quite astonishing that there has been so little communication with the rank and file Gardaí on this. For him to admit that the first the Gardaí are hearing about some of the details regarding this new model is in the media is just not right. You would have thought that there would have been some sort of consultation. 
process. Yeah, and I mean, if, as uh, Minister English says, it's all very well considered and thought through and it's administrative, yes, surely it should have been communicated to the force before we got it in the media as such. Derek phoned in and Derek says he's sick of people moaning. He says, before this restructuring of the Garda divisions, people were moaning about the Garda and were moaning about how it was operated and that it need it needed an overhaul. Now we have a new Garda commissioner who's prepared to do that. He should be entrusted to do that. Let's see what happens before casting doom and gloom about this. And I think that's Derek. the point <laughs> that uh, Minister English was making. He said uh, they hired this man, Drew Harris, to do a very specific job and now he's doing it. Yeah. Patricia was listening in just on the housing element of your discussion with Damien English and Patricia says it's all very well talking about what the government is going to do for people who are struggling on the housing list but what about those who are already without a home and are homeless and says and what will the implications be if there's a no deal Brexit because surely then the budget will be affected by that and how much the government has to spend. All right. Well, thank you for those comments and texts and thank you, Marie Kearns, for bringing them to us. We'll try to take a few more later in the programme. We have some outstanding, so if we can. Oh, lovely. You have some good comments for us later on. That's absolutely marvellous. We'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Me, the Melda Monster, has pleaded with government to intervene in the case of Hannah Donnelly from Drogheda. Hannah remains in hospital almost two and a half years after being admitted for surgery and she and her family are desperate for her to return home. Hannah, who's known locally and affectionately as the Warrior Princess, is 18 years old and she has a syndrome known as Apert Syndrome, a genetic disorder. And we're joined now on the phone uh, by Imelda Munster. Good morning. Morning, Orla. Now, tell me how you first came across Hannah and what you know about her. Well, I had been in contact with the family previously and um, they've been trying to get uh, Hannah home for a long time now. As as you said in your intro there, Orla, Hannah had been admitted to Temple Street Hospital in March 2017 to have much needed surgery, but complications arose and as a result, Hannah had spent the last two and a half years in hospital. But the family had received medical opinion in March of last year that uh, that medical opinion had stated that the best place for Hannah was at home. So the family set about fundraising. They had training, trained themselves up themselves. They'd remodelled their home. They'd purchased a wheelchair accessible vehicle and they had Hannah's room kitted out with everything she'll need for when she comes home. And they did that with um, the help of the local community in the fundraising. But um, a business case for a 24-7 nursing home support package was submitted for approval. And just recently then, the family had got word that Hannah was being offered four hours of transitional care a week, which is an absolute insult, and an insult in particular given the complexities of Hannah's medical condition. So the home care package offered to Hannah by the HSE was four hours a week? Four hours of transitional care a week. That is absolutely the extraordinary. The complexities of Hannah's medical condition, yeah. yeah. And is there any um, account taken of the cost to keep Hannah in hospital versus the cost of having her in home care? I mean, the cost of home care has to be a fraction of what it is costing her to keep her in an acute bed. Yes, yeah, you see, this is where there's, it's, you know, an illogical decision. It makes no sense 
at all because everybody knows it's far more expensive to keep somebody in hospital for a week. On average, it costs upwards of, I think it's 5962 I think, a week to keep somebody in hospital. So the overall cost of Hannah getting home, on top of the fact that the family have done all of the work that, you know, others should have done, really, um, it just doesn't make sense. But can you imagine an 18-year-old been in hospital for two and a half years and how desperate she is to get home. You know, she deserves the chance to be part of our family again. She's a 10-year-old sister, you know, and she deserves to have as normal family life as, as possible. And quite apart from the impact on Hannah herself, and as you say, it is horrific to think of an 18-year-old, her youth passing in a hospital bed, um, even the impact on the family, I mean, the wear and tear on her mum and dad and her family going up and down and up and down to Temple Street. It's that's, She's in Our Lady of Lords. Oh, now. she's in yeah. Lord now, yeah. indeed. And well, they so had that's hoped, They had hoped that Hannah being in Our Lady of Lords would speed it up, you know, her getting home, but it... It hasn't done so far, and that's why I raised it uh, in the doll on, on Tuesday there, because it's so, so frustrating. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and it's, it comes on the back of, the, you know, there's, 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 there's a whole series, there's more and more cases every week of people being denied home supports and home care packages, that it's building up to actually crisis point. Well, there seems to be some kind of a moratorium on any new packages from the HSE up to November of this year. Now, I don't know when that lifts, will things change? But also there seems to be a rigidity in terms of the packages that they do offer. There doesn't seem to be a system, am I right in saying that, within the HSE for actually looking at individual cases? There doesn't appear to be because, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have to ask yourself, you know, in relation to the HSE as a healthcare provider. I mean, it's my opinion, having dealt with many, many cases, that they're actually devoid of any sort of compassion as a healthcare provider. And the government are just as bad because they're allowing all this to happen. If you look at it now, we're heading into the, you know, winter and all that comes with that in relation to trolley crisis, people getting sick, then trolley crisis, you know, emergency departments, chock-a-block, and then to restrict, so ma- to keep so many people in hospital that could go home if they gave them the home care package to free up beds. But in particular, you know, Hannah's case and all of the others are equally, I mean, I could give you examples of some horrific cases where they've been offered a half an hour's care, you know, and that's, that's for somebody who's seriously ill, you know, somebody with dementia. Um, it's just horrific. What's I've always on. questioned the half hour care package. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. could barely get in the door and, and how would you even talk to the person and find out what they need and it's time for you to leave again. Yeah. I mean, a half hour care package seems ridiculous. Mobility issues and, you know, other other conditions that, you know, they need help with getting out of the bed, getting washed, getting dressed, all that sort of thing. But in Hannah's case, the family have done everything. They have the room ready, the, the wheelchair accessible vehicle. They have their home remodeled. And they're just desperate, desperate to get her home. And there's a campaign ongoing at the minute, Get Hannah Home for Christmas. And I'm just not going to let this rest because it's the injustice of it all. It's it's actually inhumane what's, ha- what's happening. Now, you did bring it up with the minister in the doll this week. Did you get any kind of a decent response? No, no. It, it was more or less, it, there was sympathy for the case, but... Everybody else has families. You know, he didn't address the issue of the, the HSE refusing to, to um, give out adequate home care packages at all. So when I came out of the chamber, I was absolutely furious 
and um, I wrote to the Minister for Health. So if we don't get any response in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to seek a meeting with Hannah's family um, with the Minister for Health because by and hook or crook, together we're going to get Hannah home. for Finally then, Imelda Munster, what form are the family in when you're speaking with them? Well, they, I mean, you can understand their frustration. They're heartbroken, actually. They're just, mm-hmm. they're at breaking point almost. You know, I mean... They're going in to visit Hannah daily. They're, they're, they're with, very with tough. her. And she desperately wants to go home, naturally enough. There's a ten year, her 10-year-old sister at home. And they're, I mean, they've to split their time. You know, they've, they've to be in two places at once, if you like. They have one daughter at home and then they have Hannah in the hospital. So you can imagine the absolute stress that family are under. And the fact that they went and have everything ready to take Hannah home it's all done. The work is all done. Yeah. 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 Now we just need yeah. the care package. All right. Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath, Emelsta Mulster. Thank you for joining us with that on LMFM today. And just to say that Hannah is a very highly regarded in Drogheda, in the community. The uh, Warrior Princess is held in great affection by the town of Drogheda. And hopefully people will get behind that campaign to bring her home for Christmas. And we will be doing more on the whole issue of home care and the HSC later in the programme. But first, we'll go back. Back over to you, Marie Kearns. You have a few more comments for us. I do indeed, Orla. David emailed us in this morning to say he was outraged by Minister English his comments on the show this morning just with regard to the housing situation he says that uh, the Minister compared the co-living standards that he and Minister Murphy are promoting to family members living in one house and he believes this is not the case and he says this is something like something out of the Trump playbook where Trump suggests, suggests and repeats something until people eventually fall for it. Our housing homelessness and rental rip-off crisis is getting worse by the day and all the government can do is contribute to more more nonsense and distraction. It's time for a big change, says David. Well, you'll have that choice next year, David. He will <laughs> so indeed. That's his he will on indeed. It. And Dermot says on the moving of the Garda HQ from Navan, Dermot just says looking at the entire remodelling of the Garda divisions would it not have made more sense to put Louth and Meath together, says Dermot. Then if I can move away from that, Orla, Please I've do. lots of response in uh, in relation to a topic we covered earlier in the week and I just haven't got to them. Uh, you interviewed uh, former Minister Mary O'Rourke in re- just to coincide with National Fraud That's Week. right. And she spoke about how she was targeted by scammers and just at the last minute something twigged uh, you know and she didn't succumb uh, to their attempts to defraud her. But a couple of comments in relation to that. Mick from Fingal phoned in and says listening into that interview with Mary O'Rourke and found it very interesting. I just note that from time to time there seems to be areas targeted by scammers and I just wonder could something be done that when people are targeted in an area that there's some sort of system in place even if LMFM took it on board that it would be put out into the public domain because quite often they do target a specific area so if you were if you got the phone call that at least maybe you drained the radio station let them know and it could be put out there just to prevent people maybe from being targeted it's just similar to like if there was somebody housebreakers in the 
area. Sometimes like you have text watch. alert schemes yes. or something like that, that maybe that could work. We also had uh, a phone call from Shirley who says that my mother loves a phone call, Orla, and that interview really resonated with me because I do worry about burglars breaking into the house, but I never really thought about cautioning her against maybe chatting to someone on the phone that she doesn't know that might be looking for information. So thank you very much for that. It, that's a, it's such a valid point because those people, the scammers, when they dial a phone and they hear an elderly, vulnerable voice going, hello, and they know that person is just dying for a chat. Yes. Then they know, bingo, we yes. are, we're on we're here. In here. Yes, yeah. Another listener made a, a valid point too and is just wondering where the information about these elderly people are coming from. Was there a database hacked that had all this information? Because it seems to be older people who are being targeted. Uh, as someone that works in the computer industry, it appears from listening to your interview that mostly elderly people are being contacted. So was there a database hacked? Wonders this listener. Uh, Jack also was in touch on the topic and says, Orla, the reason older people are getting scammed, I feel, is the speed at which technology is moving also in banks and other institutions. Older people often are just left behind. You go into a bank now and it's often like a disco with flashing lights everywhere. Not a human sometimes to serve you. You have to use machines. And although age action give out information and there are supports out there, sometimes older people just feel that they left behind that they are being left behind and they don't know and I just think that they are too easy to scam says Jack so lots of different reactions to that and um, we leave it for the moment Orla All right, the Marie, is ticking. thank you so much for that uh, and yeah very very valid points there about elderly people and I think the message from that item we did last week was to just uh, always check with your elderly relatives have they been getting those phone calls because sometimes they don't admit to it That's right. and just to, to check in with them and make sure they're okay um, still to come in the programme Deep Water a new book on uh, the Irish Water Saga Orla Carmody on LMFM now, what was billed as the most ambitious water metering programme in the world ended up in deep water. The title of a book on the long-running Irish water saga by Michael Brennan, political editor with the Sunday Business Post. The row over installing metres outside homes to build families on water usage in order, supposedly, to gather the funds to upgrade a Victorian underground piping system divided the nation with protests and marches and demonstrations. To the government's embarrassment, it was forced to ultimately send out one million refunds and Michael Brennan joins us now with the inside story of the saga. Good morning Michael. Good morning Orla. Now previous movements or attempts at movements like for example in the household tax failed to ignite but this one caught a wave to coin a phrase. Why exactly? You're absolutely right about the movement against the household charge and that's actually a reason why the water charge movement took off If you remember, there was a lot of little groups around the country who didn't want to pay that 100 euro uh, charge for their house. It was like a forerunner of the property tax. All of a sudden, the revenue commissioners were brought in and they were taking the money out of people's bank accounts, whether they liked it or not, and that movement collapsed. It just fizzled out, exactly. It did. But it left an infrastructure, I would call it, of protest of people who had suddenly become politically active and all of a sudden, water charges then give them a chance to have a second go. And they found 
that the reception they got was much better and the government could never use the the revenue to to take the money. And why did it suddenly become more cohesive, as you say, this movement, all these little groups? Why did the uh, the water thing just suddenly catch the imagination? There's there's, uh, so many little things, but I I could summarise it maybe in in a way. It was like three movements coming together you had those those groups who were out there protesting. A lot of them began, began protesting against meters in uh, being installed in housing estates in Dublin and Cork and elsewhere. That was one element. Then you had a right to water movement set up, which sort of brought Middle Ireland out onto the streets. So that was a second element. And the third thing was there was a movement to boycott the bills that people wouldn't pay their wa- Irish water bill when it came through the post. And that then started to hurt the government and Irish water. And a, a probably a fourth element is the atmosphere all at the time. You had a recession, you had taxes, you had immigration, high unemployment. And, and there was an element of water charges being the last straw for lots of people. It's, it seems as if, you know, in the really extremes of austerity, we put up with everything, no matter what went on, as you said, we just knuckled down, got on with it and put up with it. And much worse things when the Troika and we were in, in that whole scenario. And yet the water then was the thing that just uh, flared up. Was it organised, as you say, the, group, the groups behind the scenes, were they organised by unions? Was it politically motivated the government would have said at the time that uh, the opposition parties were behind it what what got it all going yeah that, that was one of the fascinating things that i really wanted to find out when i started doing the book about two years ago um enda kenny when he was teacher could all would often have accused paul murphy the the socialist party td now leaving to form his own party absolutely he, he'd have said that paul was the ringleader and you know like a pied piper type figure but what I found from talking to the protesters in, in the likes of Dublin and Cork, it was organic. There were people who were just pulled into it, people who had lost jobs, people who had had their salaries cut. And Paul Murphy and, and other part TDs like him, they were sort of following on in the slipstream. They weren't the leaders. And, and that was, I thought, a really interesting element to it. And yet, when it came to the incident with uh, Joan Burton, it was Paul Murphy and others who were at the sort of forefront of that. Again, they were certainly there as the most prominent people. And what is really interesting, the Gardaí on the scene in Jobstown, that was where Joan Burton and her assistant were trapped in a in a car and then a Garda jeep for nearly about three and a half hours. It was astonishing stuff. A standoff it, as such. It was, yeah. And it was the, the closest we've had to a riot situation in Ireland for, for many years. Um, but the Gardaí on the scene... They didn't recognise a lot of the protesters. They just didn't know them, but they recognised Paul Murphy, some of them. But it was actually organised, that protest again, by a local uh, anti-metering group called Tala Says No. The word went out on Facebook in the morning of that of Joan Burton arriving to present certificates in a place called On Cusson, a third-level type institute in Jobstown. And it was Facebook that the water protesters were using to get the word out. And, and they just caught the guards and the government completely unawares. And obviously we have to say that though, although it went to court, uh, Paul Murphy and others were exonerated. So that that's sort of important to say. But also yes. um, it was geographically centred in certain areas in Dublin and Cork. Again, what did you find about that? Yeah, I, I, I sort of make a reference and a respectful one to what happened in, in history in the War of Independence where you had a national uh, struggle and, and conflict, but a lot of the, the incidents happened in Dublin and Cork. And it was the same, believe it or not, in the, the water protest movement. 
I lived about 20 years ago in a place called Toker in Cork City when I worked with the Irish Examiner. And uh, on my way where I lived, there was a huge hill. Halfway up that hill was an estate called uh, Ashbrook Heights, uh, sort of there up the hill. That was where the first ever metres were stopped going in in, in the country. And that was about April 2014. About a week later, Orla, there was another group in Dublin in a place called Edenmore near Rahini, stop meters and it just carried on from there. Now, obviously, we've said there was marchers and, and protests and you said there the demonstration that Joan Burton got caught up in was nearly the closest thing we've seen to a riot in many years. But at the same time, some of the demonstrations were kind of humorous. I mean, you speak about, you know, areas in Dublin where there were sort of the old dears sitting out on the street, literally doing their knitting, preventing the, the, the meters from being installed. That's right. And I, I'm, I'm delighted you mentioned that because I, I sort of worked hard to try and give the human side of the water protest. These were not people who were two horns on their heads. They were very much ordinary Irish citizens. And there were those older women in the Dublin housing estates with their, their well-known sort of traditional wish um, sitting, sitting on the place where the meter installers wanted to put in the meter, uh, doing their knitting and telling the installers that they were gorgeous and telling the guards that they were gorgeous <laughs> and just having a lot having of fun the crack. with them. You know, yeah. so it, but it, still it, protesting. They were still protesting, but in, in, I suppose, a very Irish way. I think we're quite good at that in Ireland as well. We can they were probably kind of, offering them cups of tea as well. They, they, well, at one stage, they were actually offered pancakes. They had a, they had a sort of a, it was Pancake Tuesday, and they fried pancakes on the street, and they gave them to the guards and the meter installers as well, you know, because obviously they, they hadn't any work to do. They, they weren't able to do what they wanted. And Michael, obviously you covered this closely throughout, but putting it all together in a book, is this book very much aimed at um, journalists and politicians who are into the minutiae of this or would it have appeal to the general public, do you think? Uh, well, I, I, I wrote it in the mind of, I'm someone who's obviously, like so many people, I loved love books and I, I tried to write it in the, the most broad manner possible because, you know, there, there are things in here, there's people who wrote, protest songs with, with Father Ted references. There's a protester whose son was a river dance world champion. Uh, you've got a, a, a band who, who set up, who came up with their own Irish water anti-privatisation song and, and sang in the protest. The, it, to me, it's a very broad story. And we had story. even Glenn Hansard out singing at protests as well, yes, didn't we? And, yeah. uh, Alan Kelly, the, the, the former Minister of Environment, told me he he was telling his advisors he wanted to leave the safety of Leinster House and go out and join the protest just to listen to, to Glenn Hansard and, and Damien Dempsey, who are some of his favourite musicians. So I, I think I tried to keep the book as a, a, a mixture between the serious and the light, because that's, that's life ultimately. And, and there's a really human story there, as well as the, the rows at Cabinet and the the, the shouting in Dáil Air and that there, there was a broader story as well. And finally then, the impact of social media on this. Again, it's probably the first time so much of the organising was done on social media. Isn't that the case? It absolutely was. Um, I talked to protesters who were involved in the, their battles against water charges in Dublin in the 90s and they used to go around to the housing estates, print out 1,000 leaflets and, and drop them all by hand and maybe four people would turn up at their meeting now they could just put up a post on Facebook. They could put up videos of their protests and their marches. And look at what re- happened recently with the beef plan movement, 
where they weren't using Facebook as far as I know. It's WhatsApp, which is, was more, wasn't so big back in 2014. But they were able to organize with social media and in a way bypass the traditional media and, and communicate. And that, that is, is a huge tool for, for protesters that they didn't have before. All right, Michael Brennan, um, political editor with the Sunday Business Post. Thanks so much for joining us today. And I know your book is called In Deep Water and it's on all good bookstores now. It's by Mercier Press and it's available at 1895. We'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now the term bed blocker is pejorative and one we don't like to use, but it appears in the headlines this time time every year as the winter approaches and many elderly people end up on trolleys and are overcrowded hospitals and then when they do eventually get admitted often stay far too long in that acute hospital bed because they can't manage at home and there's nowhere else to go and so the cycle continues. With an ageing population and a changing demographic which means that casual or informal home care is dwindling the availability of professional home care has to be increased and we're joined now by the CEO of HCCI that's Home and Community Care Ireland, Joseph Musgrave. Good morning, Joseph. Morning, Orla. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, we heard earlier on the programme today of a young woman in Drada, two and a half years in hospital. The family have the home all ready for her to bring her home. She needs fairly constant care and the HCCI has offered a package of four hours a week. How is that still happening? Well, yeah, the HSC, um, I've heard about this story. I mean, the problem we have is that the home care in Ireland isn't on a statutory footing. There's no legislation underpinning it. So it's supply-led. What that means is each year the government gives a block of money to the HSE for home care. This year it's $446 million. And when the HSE reached that spending cap, that's it. That's as far as it goes. It doesn't matter how much uh, someone needs care, how much, you know, how much their needs are for that care. They're not going to get any more than the HSE can afford. Unlike other schemes where it's demand-led, you're entitled to care if your needs are at a certain level. So what HCCI is arguing for, and we'll be releasing a report on Tuesday next week that sets out this all in detail, we're arguing that we need a statutory scheme that is demand-led. So in this case that you're talking about, someone could be assessed and they would need, let's say, 15, 20 hours of care. That's what they would be entitled to. That's what the, uh, the the scheme would then deliver for that person rather than this current rationing, which we have. So when you say you'd like to see home care on a statutory basis, you mean in a similar way that the fair deal has been put on a statutory basis? Yeah, exactly. And I don't think fair deal is necessarily entirely the model that we need to follow in home care. You know, I think there's some difficulties with assessing uh, somebody's assets whilst they're living in their own home and saying that, you know, there's like a time limit that at a certain point the money runs out. So I think that the exact details of the scheme need to be worked out, but we do need to put, like Fair Deal, we need to put um, home care on a statutory footing, which just means that everybody is then clear about what they're entitled to, how to access the scheme, how it's funded, rather than this totally random system right now where someone could be assessed as needing 20 hours of care, but then the number crunchers say, I can give you three. Now, it's obvious that people want to be cared for at home. They, the outcomes are better. People are, are happier, healthier, less wear and tear in families for all of the reasons. But in last year's budget in the health care uh, allocation, there was no mention of home care. It's like it just didn't figure. In your pre-budget submission this year, what are you asking for and what are you hoping for? 
Yeah, two two very different questions. Uh, so what we're asking for is we think to fully fund the scheme, we need around $138 million. Now, we're not going to get that because we know it's well trailed that the government is talking about $700 million, uh discretionary spending in this current budget cycle. So we're not going to see a seventh of that just for home care alone. So what I've been saying to the powers that be is that at the very least, we need to make a huge dent into this waiting list for home care. It's, it's crept over from around 3,600 in June 2016. It's now over 7,000 three years later. So I've said we need to see a, a very quick injection of money into the home care scheme, 40 to 50 million to clear that waiting list because we just have to stop this crazy situation where people are waiting for, it could be three days, it could be three months, it could be years, and there's no time limit. We need to clear that waiting list. Now, obviously, with an ageing population, the demand for home care is going to increase. Um, and without the funding in place, and as you say, without any, any regulation on it, it becomes very, very fraught. How many members do you represent and how many home care providers are there in the country and how many people are currently uh, looking for home care? Yeah, so Home Community Care Island represents around 75 member companies across the country. Uh, we think that there's probably around a hundred and a hundred or so providers, maybe a little bit more between the the private sector and the non profit sector. And in terms of our footprint is our members employ around twelve to fourteen thousand carers directly and care for twenty one thousand people across the state. Now across Ireland there's probably around 65-odd thousand people who receive home care, and we estimate that it's probably closer to around 100,000 who need it. So between the waiting list, uh, there's three things. There's the waiting list, there's unmet needs. So this is people at the situation you're talking about today where someone wants or needs a certain amount of hours, but they're getting far less um, if they're getting it at all. And then people who haven't come forward because they don't know how to access the scheme, they don't know where to start. So between those factors, we think we're, we're quite substantially underserving the need for home care. And for a family that can't access the home care, as we heard this morning, or are offered a paltry amount, if they then have to pay for it privately, is that is, is that exorbitant? No, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it. Well, it depends on your means, of course. You know, it would probably cost you uh, in, in the region of sort of 25 euros, maybe a bit less to get an hour of home care um, or if you're paying for it yourself. Now, of course, you can avail of certain uh, tax schemes in order to reduce the burden on yourself. You know, I think that will work for some people. It won't work for a lot of people because it may be, it may be too much. But the average person probably needs around six hours of home care. So the HSC are giving you, you know, what's the average around four. It would probably cost you around, you know, 25 to 50 quid a week to bring you up to what you really should be getting. And this is this is in lieu of the scheme coming in. All right. Well, then finally, Joseph Musgrave, uh, your conference coming up next week uh, and the report you're launching. Tell me briefly about that. Yes, yeah, so on Tuesday, Tuesday morning at the Western Hotel, we're launching our reports. We have Mr. Jim Daly coming to speak and a variety of other people like Brandon Courtney and Nora Owen, uh, all speaking around home care. We're launching our report, our roadmap into how we think the statutory scheme should operate, some answers to some of the key questions. 
And we're trying to really get the debate moving from the current sort of amorphous, we need a scheme to this is what we think it should look like. All right. Uh, Joseph Musgrave, uh, CEO of Home and Community Care Ireland. Thank you for joining us this morning. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now, stressful working conditions, lack of respect and poverty are forcing staff out of the childcare sector. There are 25,000 people in Ireland currently working in the childcare sector and 98% of them are women. And we're seeing this lack of interest at a time when childcare fees are rising and rising with parents paying up to 8% more for childcare this year than they did last year. And we're joined now by Sabrina O'Brien, SIP2 organiser. Childcare workers are really struggling. Your survey has Found, Sabrina. Good morning, Orla. That is exactly what the survey has found. Um, it's it's not like, struggling. I don't think really captures it. Um, it's it, it kind of actually under it underestimates the effects of, of low pay on people's lives. What we're seeing from our survey is just this this passion that people have, but an absolute inability that they that they have they have as a result of their low pay to actually deal with with life, with the expenses that come with life. I mean, one of the most shocking um, figures that came out of our survey was that in, a, you know, in, in, a, in a sector that's 98% female, you know, there is um, an overwhelming majority of people, and we're talking like 90, like 90% of people do not receive any maternity, uh, paid maternity benefit. We're also looking at the fact that uh, 80 uh, 84% of people working in the sector cannot cope with an unexpected expense in life. Now this is this is one of these poverty indicators and w- what that can mean for people is they may not be able to face a medical bill, they may not be able to fix a broken down car and the, 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 the piece that we used specifically in our survey was replacing a washing machine. This has a significant impact on the lives of every, like everyday lives of people. What you're saying there is actually, I'm sure, you know, putting the heart crossways in parents because you leave your child into a creche in trust and you hope that that person coming in is happy and contented and can actually park their own stuff and give your child the attention they need. And they absolutely can't if they can't make ends meet, if they're, as you say, their washing machine, they can't afford to fix it. And and just for you to say 66% of these women don't receive maternity leave in a childcare business. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, 66% of them say that they definitely don't receive it. And there are still others out there who, they, they, they may not yet have inquired about it. They may not have even thought about it. Um, I think for parents in, in the situation, because there is this, there, there is a fear that they're going to leave their child with somebody who's unmotivated, who's unhappy. And I can completely empathise with parents in that situation. However, if you speak to any early years educator out there, they like the passion that they have. Everything is child centered. Everything is about like the love that they have for their job. The, the the reward they get from seeing the children develop and grow and I mean I I I go in and out of early year services every day of the week and just the the sheer happiness that's in there is is really really lovely. However, the problem is is that in five years time we may not have an early year sector to even talk about because we've got ninety percent of people working in it questioning their future. We also have 50% of the people working in it currently actively looking for another job. So I think... And are they actively looking for another job in a different sector or hoping to get a better job within their own sector? The, from the people I've speak, that I, I've spoken to anecdotally, I would say that they, they are looking to uh, move out of the sector because of... And they cite reasons around 
lack of job security, uh, kind of a burnout, um, a, a feeling of lack of recognition really for what they're doing. I mean, they, at the end of the day, they look after people's most important little people and their prized little dotines. And unfortunately, I think as as, as a society, we haven't recognised the exact power of, of, of the service that they're actually delivering. Even the fact that even in your survey, you call uh, people working in childcare early years professionals, early years educators, even that language is so much more respectful than a childcare worker. You know, it is it is a, a level of, and they have gone through so much education and as you've said yourself, the passion they bring to it. I remember my own children running into the crash and throwing their arms around uh, the childcare worker. They just loved them, you know, and, and that passion. And to think that we're, we're sort of killing that by allowing them feel undervalued. I mean, none of them probably go into it for money, but to feel undervalued valued is is the worst part of it I think 100% um, the the actual title uh, that is used to define this this sector and I, to be honest I feel uncomfortable even calling it a sector because of the service that, that is being delivered it, it, it's very hard to actually find uh, a title that everybody agrees with and even the title has changed over the years I watched a presentation by Noreen Hayes uh, from Trinity College talking about uh, that all of the different names that is used to describe the people and used to describe the sector itself, we cannot even decide and agree on a, on a title. Um, I've heard people every from uh, childcare assistant right up to you know kind of at the top end using the term teacher, and they are teachers. They are teachers indeed. I'm, I'm afraid we're running up against time, Sabrina. I'd love to talk to you longer on this issue because it is so important. But finally, what do they need to do to organise better in order to, to have that respect for their profession? OK, I'll keep this as brief because this is the most important part. But ultimately, the most pressing issue that we have is we are seeking an allocation of €32 million Euro in this uh, upcoming budget to bring everybody up to a basic threshold of decency of a living wage. Moving on from that, what we are doing is we are calling on all early years educators out there to come together. We've been coming together for the last couple of years and the union uh, is growing. It's absolutely growing. It's growing in strength. It's growing in power. We will be seeking a sectoral employment order to bring in a, a pay scale and a government funded pay scale in early 2020. All so right, is, Sabrina, I'm sorry yeah. to cut you off, but we're right no up problem. against it. And the best of luck with that. And thank you for joining us today. Now, finally, on the programme, Irish companies which pilot or introduce a four day working week will be able to get support from 4DWI, Four Day Week Ireland, a new coalition of businesses and unionists and environmental who want to campaign for shorter working times in all sectors of the economy. And we're joined now by the CEO of Galway-based recruitment company, ICE, Margaret Cox. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning, Orla. How are you? Margaret, is a four-day week a pipe dream? Will we ever see it? Well, we're seeing it in Galway. We started on the 1st of July. It is a trial. Um, We will make a final decision at the end of December. But, you know, halfway through the trial at this stage, um, it seems that uh, unless something very unexpected happens in terms of the economic forces that are outside of our control, it seems that we'll stay on it. So, yes, in in ICE in Galway, Limerick and Sligo, um, all of our full-time people are on a four-day week. And I suppose the picture of what that means is that um, every week we have a three-day weekend. So in ICE, we, we work either Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we're off then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or we work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we're off Saturday, Sunday. And have you seen happier, healthier staff as a result of this? Absolutely. 
So the deal was you'd move on to the four-day week, you'd get five days pay, but the commitment that we're looking from the team is 100% product. Uh, productivity the same as we had before and 100% commitment to customer satisfaction. So you're acknowledging that people are working four days but they're possibly looking at emails at at night or they're doing extra work, they're contributing the full effort of a five-day week but they're just doing it in four. They're doing it in four. Now our day change we we would have been four eight-hour days and we've gone to uh, sorry, it would have been five eight-hour days and we've gone to four nine-hour days. So the day in the office has extended by the one hour. Um, but that's made up then because you're off and you've the three days off every weekend. And people um, are responding no, to it and saying they're happy with this. Absolutely. We don't expect them to do emails in the evening time or take phone calls. Um, that would be very unusual for something like that to happen. I'm not saying it never happens, but it's very unusual. Obviously, we've um, Henry Ford, the American industrialist, to thank for the five day week. He began to give his factory workers two days off and the whole weekend idea was born in the 1900s. But it took until 1938 before the government began to limit companies to the 40 hour working week. So do you think it'll be another 20 years before we see a four day week as a, a regular feature? I think that the four-day week is um, it's starting. It, it'll be a movement that will grow itself. Um, it's got to come from the bottom up. I think if it was an initiative that was driven by government, it probably wouldn't be successful. But it will need to be supported by government. Um, and I think probably 10 to 12 years, I would see. That's my vision anyway. Um, but I would see organisations that are um, bold, creative and inventive who want to focus on their talent, who want to make sure that they've got the best talent for their clients and their companies, they're the ones that are going to look at the flexibility that they want to offer to their employees. And um, I think we'll start seeing it coming across the country. Once there's a structure and, and maybe a model that people can follow and uh, support there, the climate action people are incredibly supportive of this. The Women's Council are incredibly supportive of this. Forces of Trade Union is also driving it in the public sector. So I think there's a lot of good feeling out there. And the, the desire is there. I mean, it makes a huge difference to our society. Um, I heard you talking about, I think it was childcare earlier on. Um, this is a huge, it will make a huge difference to families. Um, and then for people who don't have a family, well, look, at it's good. It makes a better life for them as well. So, And as you say, contributes to the environment by reducing carbon footprint. It allows people to have flexibility, re- the remote working. But obviously, it will re- the remote working element will, will definitely reply, uh, rely on, on broadband. But yeah. in, the, in the short term, you believe more companies could do this. They could experiment with this and see how it goes. I believe so, yes. I, I'm, I'm fully committed to it. If you had said to me a year ago, well, I see that ICE Group uh, would be able to, to adopt this, I would have said, oh, I don't know, I don't think so. But um, 13 weeks into the trial, having done a lot of preparation, um, we're fully committed to it. And how long is the trial going to last for, or is this it now? Is it in place in your company? No, the trial is between now and December. We thought we'd give it six months because we really need to measure the productivity. So we're halfway through, and but we're very hopeful. Um, all of the people who are working in the company and indeed the management are um, completely committed to sort of making this happen uh, for real and forever on the 1st of January 2020. All right, Margaret Cox, CEO of the Galway-based recruitment company ICE. You're very brave with that move and we commend you for it and hopefully other uh, employers will follow suit. That's where we have to leave it on the programme. 
I'm Orla Carmody. I've been with you for the last two weeks while Michael has been on his holiday. It's been a very great pleasure to be with you. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. My thanks to the entire team here at LMFM who do such a great job keeping you um, entertained and informed and particularly the local team here or the immediate programme team, Marie Kearns, uh, Maggie McGuire and Chris Murray. They've been absolutely fantastic. Michael's back with you on Monday. I'll see you sometime on the radio. Until then, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.